It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Rates are on the rise, but just don't look at the bond market. But we've got the Bank of England, it raised rates. We've got the Federal Reserve talking about raising rates in 2022 and 2023. What does that mean for economic outlook in the face of a resurgent pandemic here? Let's check in with Jennifer Lee, Senior Economist and Managing Director at BMO Capital Markets. Jennifer, thanks so much for taking the time uh, to be with us here. How are you thinking about your 2022 economic outlook in the face of rising interest rates, in the face of inflation, transitory, maybe not in the face of this uh, Omicron variant? Um, good morning. Um, you know what? I'm fairly optimistic overall. Of course, I have my, my days. But overall, I think we are still, you know, we're still upbeat. I think it's a good thing in, in many ways that the uh, that um, central banks are finally starting to raise rates. I say finally for some. Some of them have already been doing so over the past number of months, because if they weren't raising rates, it would mean that the global economy, and the U.S. in particular, is still in too mm-hmm. weak of shape to handle it. So I think in, in, in that way, it's, it's a good thing. Um, whether or not um, you know we can get these prices under control is, is another story. Uh, we look for actually for CPI to continue, um, uh, maybe not rising at such a quick, uh, fast pace, but we look for it to peak around, I think, 7% uh, in the new year, just mm-hmm. because of, you know, uh, food costs and, and housing and all that before moderating um, in the second half of the year. So we're talking about potentially a seven handle on CPI in the not so distant future and a Fed rate hike that will come in maybe not so distant after that. And yet I'm looking at a 10 year Treasury yield that is at 137. What kind of yeah. signal do you take from the bond market right now? That is a big head scratcher. Um <laughs> In some ways, I'm you know I'm wondering you know maybe the bond market is is thinking that you know transitory should not have been uh, you know um, removed from from the lexicon. Hmm. Um, it's also a potential that you know everyone is still very um, afraid or fearful of what um, Omicron is going to bring or what the impact is going to be because there are, you know there are all these different um, um, papers or surveys coming out of, of what the impact will be, of what the what the uh, the the, the um, of whether or not you know we are able to fight it, um, and I think it's a bit too soon right now. But you know, obviously, it's not looking that great right now. Jennifer, what is given that backdrop? What what is your GDP forecast for 2022, and what could be kind of the variables that either move that one way or the other off your kind of your your best case or your, your best case? 
So this year, we're looking at about 55 5.6% uh, growth, uh, and of course, the year is almost over. Next year, we do see growth moderating to 3.5%. Um, moderating, yes, but that's still almost um, double um, um, the, the long-run potential. And this is all assuming that, you know, we're not going to see huge restrictions like we saw back in 2020 um, in, that are needed to control Omicron. Um, we're going to see probably still low real rates. Um, but I think the, the the main thing is that we still have massive household savings out there. So even mm-hmm. though ra- prices are rising and it's probably going to hamper some um, buying decisions, I think households in general can still handle it. So we still see, you know, um, um, a boost from that. And, of course, this is all assuming that the supply chain disruptions will ease up around the middle of the year. So we're focused a lot, obviously, on the Fed's accelerated taper, when liftoff may be, what the hiking cycle is going to look like. When do we start having a more serious conversation about QT and rolling off that balance sheet? We are probably looking at some time. It will probably be sometime this year, uh, not this year, but 2022. Um, I think what they want to do is probably just get the, 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 the hikes uh, out of the way and, and get everyone more comfortable with with, ri- with raising rates. And at some point, they're going to have to start bringing down that that balance sheet, which uh, the last check was like four over four four trillion dollars, which is way way too big. So I see at some point we're probably going to start seeing a runoff beginning, probably by I'm going to say by the end of 2020. <clears throat> Jennifer, I want to talk about the labor market. I- Kaylee and I, we're in the office today, but we're one of the few here on, on a Friday. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, it's a little lonely in here. Yeah, it's a little lonely. <laughs> the four to five million folks out there that aren't in the labor force, do I need to worry about them, or, or are they just kind of out of the labor force for a variety of reasons? It's a variety of reasons, and this is the one part that, that does uh, make me feel very uncomfortable. And this is where the whole virus um, kicks in again. It's all, it's all, it's almost like a big um, chain reaction. You know, if we can get this virus under control, and if everybody gets comfortable with with getting the vaccines um, and getting back to work, you know, then I think I am. That's why I'm optimistic for you know for for 2022. But if people are still afraid to return back to work just for fear of contracting the virus, if schools return to online learning, and even if it's just for a few weeks, you know, that's very disruptive. And that means that labor shortages are going to continue. Um, and that, you know, of course means not enough hands on deck to, to build the car, to create the car, to program everything. Um, so that means all these shortages are going to continue. And that means prices are going to rise. Um, wages are going to heat up further. And that's going to give the Fed the green light to keep, to keep tightening. That, so that's what I'm afraid of is just that people are just still afraid to come back to work. All right, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate that. Jennifer Lee, Senior Economist and Managing Director at BMO Capital Markets. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. housing here. This has just been an amazing part of the economy to me, at least all throughout the pandemic. This housing market 
has just really performed well. I took advantage of it as a seller. <laughs> uh, Matt Miller was probably on the other end of that trade as a recent buyer of real estate in the metro New York area. But it's just been a constant, constant uh, strong part of the economy. Let's get the latest from Brad Dillman. He's a chief economist at Cortland. Brad, give us kind of, is there more room to grow in what I consider to be a very strong uh, real estate market? Yeah, definitely. You know, our estimate is still that the U.S. is underbuilt by about a million housing units. Uh, we can look at the Case-Shiller Index with annual home price appreciation. It does look like it's hit its peak, but it's not going to go to zero overnight. So I think we're still looking at a situation where home prices are going to be going up for certainly the next uh, year and a half at least. So we can talk about the supply side, but on the demand side and for people wanting to buy homes, how would a Fed starting to lift interest rates affect that as it relates to mortgage rates and, and you know, how much people can afford? Yeah, you know, what's been behaving, interest rates have been behaving very interestingly over the last couple of years. Uh, we can look at the 10-year treasury rate, which has been negative in real terms for mm -hmm. about a year and a half, two years now. And it's actually been unresponsive. Uh, to these taper-related announcements. Uh, you know, the 10-year right now I'm looking at on my screen is at 1394. Uh, the 2013 precedent would have suggested that should go up. So right now it doesn't look like it's having any effect, but if these rate hikes do happen next year, and we're thinking there's going to be three now, we should see that translate into higher long-term rates, or we'll have to see the Fed reverse course and begin to cut rates relatively quickly because three rate hikes implies that the high end of the Fed funds rate would be at around 1%, and that's not a lot of spread to 1.4%, which is where the 10-year is right now. That does, that's not commensurate with a, a steep yield curve associated with a continued expansion. Brad, you talk about uh, the U.S. being underbuilt by you know, at least a million uh, households. What I've heard in the past is where the real shortages is in the lower end of the market, the entry-level house. There's lots of McMansions being built all over the country, but not a lot for the first-time buyer. Is that changing here? Well, you know, builders are always having to build, uh, you know, on, on the margin, right? So it's very difficult to deliver housing product that's at the bottom of the market without some kind of subsidies. But when I look at what's happening in starts, um, I see a continued uh, reversion to the pre-pandemic longer-term trend. If you were to draw a straight line on a lot of these metrics from the Great Recession to where we are today, over the last couple of years, we had, a, a, you know, maybe a big pullback and then a big rebound. And things are kind of right-sizing. Mm -hmm. uh, when I look at the, the over or under supply of housing in the country, and again, we, we obviously estimate that it's underbuilt right now, it does look like the worst of that was a couple of years ago. And so in a sense, we're building more housing than we need right now, but we've got a lot we have to catch up with. It's almost like what the Fed has argued with inflation, right, that it was so low yeah. for so long, we need to catch up. Brad, let's talk about people getting, if they, you know, are being priced out of buying a home. I'm not talking about myself here, but I don't think I'd be in a position <laughs> to buy a house right now. But at the same time, I'm looking at rents in New York City that are going really, really astronomically higher, at least compared to, you know, 2020 COVID levels. What are you seeing more broadly in terms of rents and people who may not be able to buy and are looking to rent, but those are also much more expensive? Yeah, I mean, there's no question that the rental market has performed very well over the last year and a half. Uh, we're clocking rents, and when I say we, I mean our, our market data, not Cortland specifically, but at probably about 15.5% year over year across wow. the submarkets we track for 2021. And we think that's going to go to about 6.5% next year. So that's a big slowdown in annual rent growth, but it's still very large by historical standards. So, yes, if we are in a situation where, say, the that mortgage rates really do go up with these rate hikes, 
we'll see that much more demand channeled to the rental space. Hey, Brad, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate getting the update on real estate. And again, real estate's been one of those asset classes that's performed consistently well uh, throughout this pandemic and the economic disruption. Brad Dillman's a chief economist at Cortland. And my question, you know, on the back of your question, Kaylee, in New York City at least, what are these people doing? They're not, right. they're coming back into the city, they're renting apartments but they're not going to work. I mean, they're not coming into the office. Yeah, well, and I wonder too, if people are looking for, you know, bigger places where there's room to have a desk for work from home. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and it's been interesting to see too, the division between luxury housing and luxury rentals here in the US versus, you know, standard buildings that don't have a doorman. There's a yep. big divide there. Yeah, interesting. I just, you know, I, f I find it fascinating um, just wondering what people are, why are they coming back into the city if they're if not, they're not going back into the office? I just don't understand that. But. Uh, the restaurants are full, so I guess that's good news there. We've got WTI crude a little bit lower today at $71.20 a barrel. You know, that supply-demand situation out there driving this commodity. What's winning the day? Regina Mayer, Principal, Global Sector Head of Energy at KPMG, joins us. So, Regina, as we look out to 2022, Boy, I'm seeing widely divergent calls on crude oil. Anything from $100 $120 a barrel to $40 a barrel. How do you view the energy markets looking out to next year? We view them as being extremely volatile, and I think that volatility will continue to be what drives the overall sentiment, and that shows in those ranges, Paul, that you just discussed. On the one hand, we know supply is constrained. Uh, we're at seasonal lows that are seven that we haven't seen in over seven years. But at the same, and we had increasing demand. Now we have Omicron and concerns about COVID and what the pandemic has in store for the world. We're having lockdowns and shutdowns. So while we thought demand was going to increase, the IEA has just issued a report that lowers their 2021 average global demand by 300,000 barrels per day. So with very uncertain demand and constrained supply, that leads to these ranges and the market impacts, right? Because WTI is down $15 from its high just a, a month or so ago. How much of this, what happens in the oil market, is going to be predicated on whatever OPEC Plus decides to do, whether they decide to continue with production cut, uh, production hikes, to hold until you know there's more certainty around the variant? I mean, do they really hold all the cards here? Not really anymore, Kaylee. I, I see their influence waning because they are largely at a point where a lot of their supply is in the market already. And while there is perhaps a little bit of incremental supply that they can continue to put into the market, the word on the street is that their supply is constrained as well. So regardless mm -hmm. of what they decide to do, I think there's a physical reality of how much they can really produce. And that's what's driving the sentiment today. Regina, let's talk about the shale uh, folks in Texas and Houston. It just seems like in the past, whenever you know oil kind of moved higher, our good friends in Texas and Oklahoma would start drilling holes. But I've been told this time is different, that they're going to have some discipline. How do you view it? That is the word on the street, Paul, discipline. And, you know, Houston, I'm here in Houston, and the Permian is practically in my backyard. <laughs> it, the public is focused on, the public companies and the CEOs are focused on free cash flow and returns. And they are committed to retaining those promises that they've made to the market. So there's no willy-nilly, we're all rushing out to go drill some more wells. We do see rig counts up. I think they're up seven uh, over the last week. They're 70% up year over year, but they're still down 24% against a pre-pandemic level. And let's, let's be clear, even if you 
do drill a hole today, it doesn't mean that oil is there tomorrow. It still takes time for these assets to develop and then be produced. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to see shale running to the rescue. Uh, I do think we'll see incremental improvement, but it's not going to be anything to fill the potential gap if demand resurges post-Omicron. Well, let's talk about gaps in demand and look at Europe and the the energy shortage there and how volatile natural gas prices have been. I mean, today it was prices actually coming in because Russia said, hey, we got you. you. How long do you think that that kind of volatility will persist? I think it's a volatility we'll see for the next two to five years at least because we're racing into the energy transition and we don't have the supply and demand balance that we need to have. So in Houston, we're talking a lot about chaos and that the fact that the chaos will intensify as we try to transition. What we need to focus on is energy security and energy affordability. I think right now the UK is burning more natural gas and coal because the wind isn't blowing and we Mm -hmm. don't have the storage and capability of using the renewables for a much larger percentage because we need that sustainability of energy supply. So I think it's going to stay pretty chaotic for at least the near-term future. Hey, Regina, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate chatting with you, getting the latest on the global uh, energy story supply demand. Um, You know, that's kind of uh, the key issues that, you know, investors are really trying to get their handles on here. Regina Mayer, Principal Global Sector Head of Energy for KPMG. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's continue our discussion of cybersecurity. It is a huge issue for corporate America and corporations around the globe uh, Dana Simberkoff is the Chief Risk, Privacy, and Information Security Officer for Avpoint. Avpoint is a publicly traded company on NASDAQ, symbol AVPT. It's got about a $1.2 billion market cap. Dana, thanks so much for joining us here. I'd love to get your thoughts as to what are some of the key issues that you're hearing from your clients as they think about cybersecurity in this day and age? Sure. Well, thanks for having me today. Um, there are certainly a lot of things for our clients to think about, as AppPoint does as well. And key in that list is supply chain management and vendor management. I think in our increasingly interconnected world, um, companies like AppPoint provide services to uh, many of our customers to help them mitigate risk of their suppliers, to add on layers of protection, to help Uh, ensure that they're making information available to people who need it and protecting it from people who should not. And is there a sense that companies are making adequate investment in those kind of productions? I was talking to uh, the Deputy National Security Advisor, Ann Neuberger, yesterday, who focuses on cyber, and she was really pushing that the private sector needs to do more to kind of shore up their defenses. Does more investment need to be made? 
Uh, absolutely. Um, AppPoint as a cloud provider to uh, millions of customers around the world has been working in this space for about 20 years. And particularly with the shift um, that COVID has brought to uh, companies increasingly relying on the cloud for workers that are either working from home or uh, working in a hybrid environment now as people begin to come back to work, that dependency on suppliers and vendors instead of your, on your own mm. um, IT operations is, is really making it critical to invest in um, what I call trust and verify. So you obviously need to pick providers that you trust, but then verify with those third-party controls that um, you're getting what you expect from those providers as well and supplementing any of the out-of-the-box security controls that they provide as part of their services to you. So, Dana, I understand that the Biden administration is looking to tighten restrictions on data security and collection with the Build Back Better plan. What are you looking for to come out of that um, piece of legislation? Well, uh, that's a really important piece of legislation, and it's something that's been sort of in in um, discussions for some time. It's really looking at um, ensuring that companies are adequately protesting, uh, investing in controls that will allow for adequate protection of uh, consumer privacy and sensitive data. And I think all of us um, are aware that the the increase in attacks and in um, identity theft and in hacking on both our sort of personal attacks as well as uh, B2B attacks has is, is really been on the rise and at the forefront of people's minds, something that's in the news almost every day. So um, what, the, what a, a privacy law for the U.S. would mean is it would mean uh, regulatory certainty for companies. And so I think companies like AppPoint and our industry peers are, are really looking for clear guidelines on which to build, and that allows us to build a, a, a network of trusted uh, systems for consumers, for our business partners, where everybody is rowing in the same direction. Currently in the U.S., we have a very uh, federated privacy landscape where states have their own privacy laws, the industries. Mm. Uh, have their own privacy laws, and a common framework like the EU GDPR in the U.S. is something that I think would be very beneficial in helping all industries to consolidate on a common approach. So it may bring more clarity, but what kind of impact would that have on the global supply chain? Well, I think, um, you know, it may impact the supply chain, but frankly, I think in in positive ways um, for the most part, because uh, the U.S. is a country because we don't have that common privacy framework like Europe does or even like many of our counterparts around the world do. Um, that causes friction in moving data around the world, which is really critical to the supply chain. I think if we were to um, build toward that model of globalization and standards-based privacy and security controls, that would actually ease friction in the supply chain. So is this... It just feels like this is a, a public-private partnership kind of thing. I mean, I, you know, the the government's there doing what it can for the backbone, the Internet backbone and, and infrastructure, but it's also really up to the companies to step up their game. Is, is that the best way to think about just cybersecurity in general? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And again, you know, from an app point perspective, we've been doing this for over 20 years as a provider of cloud 
um, data protection for Microsoft and for Google and for Salesforce and for business um, cons- business users of these technologies, they need to know that uh, they have, again, a supply chain that they can have confidence in. And that includes not only regulation from the government side so that you have that predictability and you have benchmarks to work against, but also commitment from the companies themselves that we're all working in a common direction and that we're not um, necessarily doing the minimum necessary, but rather we're optimizing our programs and, and that's done through collaboration. Dana, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your uh, informed thoughts here. It's a critical issue for corporate America. Dana Simberkoff, Chief Risk, Privacy and Information Security Officer for AvPoint. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.